0: Today is the 24th of February, 2014, and the subject today, and probably for the next couple of weeks, is the group laws. DK uh, explains them very briefly in Tweets on Cosmic Fire, page 1216 to 1222, and in Esoteric Psychology, volume 2, from pages 87 to 200. In Esoteric Psychology, Volume Two, he points out that he's writing for um, probationary disciples, for junior initiates, um, for those that are working towards their third initiation. The information in um, Treatise on Cosmic Fire is treated at a little, at a higher level, but still, so much of the esotericism is veiled in the Treatise on Cosmic Fire. DK mentions seven group laws and there are three main cosmic laws and then which he talks about and then there's a subsidiary law of karma or the cosmic law of karma and then I've added one overriding law of cosmic identity which brings us to the necessary number 12 and my book explains all these in some sort of detail, giving much more information or unveiling some of the information that DK has given. For all of you that are in this room, you've got the <coughs> diagram. That's from figure four, the group laws. And this information will be published as the last chapter of the book Meditation and Initiation Process. Even though it will be in the last chapter and when you do read it, It'll be revision for you on the whole. It's quite important for all of you to quite thoroughly understand the group laws, what they are and how they affect disciples. It is something that is obviously not at all understood by those that are meditators and most evolving in spiritual groups. They have the exoteric elements of it, of course, they know they have to learn how to, you know, group living, the basics of group sharing and, you know, not being critical and all of those elements. But it's not really that what is meant by the group laws here. They are the the very, very basic aspects of the law of service and sometimes a bit of the law of group progress. I'll try to go into this and elucidate quite a bit more about these these group laws these laws really come to play when you are at the in the process of taking your third initiation and they're the laws that affect the soul and every other entity thereon in other words Every enlightened being, every being on the path that is affected by the anima, anima mundi, the group soul, all solar systems, all solar logi, all planetary logi, all great beings, all Mahabodhisattvas, all Buddhas are um, governed by these group laws. It is separative human beings with their selfish, self-willed activity that are not governed by group laws, they fight against them instead, and it causes the misery, mayhem, and all the other things we identify with as samsaric life. You can see, therefore, that the subject of group laws and the subject of initiation is thoroughly intertwined. You can't really understand initiation unless you comprehend the corresponding group laws associated with the initiation how you are to awaken to group identity. And after all, hierarchy, or what I call in my books, the Buddhist books, the Council of Bodhisattvas, are thoroughly governed by group laws. They are group identity. Probably the best way to think of the group laws is in terms of your own human body. If your body is functioning according to the the laws that keep it healthy, which are the group laws, you are not sick, you are healthy and when it is functioning according to those agents that disrupt that harmony in other words disrupt the laws that relate to its well-being to its harmonious flow of energies and so forth then you have sickness bearing entities, invaders or cancers and other such things happening, destroying the body's harmony you can think of yourselves, and it's not so much your personality, but your souls as being cells in the body of the planetary logos. Similar sort cellular constitution, as you have, that you call cells in your own physical body. And then those souls, and we're not just talking about human souls, but the diva units as well, forming the the organelles, etc., the blood corpuscles, the nervous system, the blood veins, that whole interrelated harmony, all the mechanism that causes the blood to pump at uh, roughly 72 beats per per minute, the nerves to function, your brains to receive those impressions, your eyes to produce um, images, and then it gets inverted in your cerebral cortex, and then it... Back then sort of inverts it and, and makes sense of all of those scattered sort of rays of light that have hit it. All of this is the functioning of group laws. So when you look at the process of above, so below that, which is within, which is also without, then you say, well, yes, what is in our body is also um, in the body macrocosm or the macrocosmic body within the planetary Logos, within the solar Logos, and all the way up to the Logos of our universe. All are functioning harmoniously, or trying to function harmoniously, regulating or utilising well-regulated laws that organise the structure of all the diverse component parts of that body. Everything evolves according to group dynamics. All of you can quite easily work out on our planet when beings fight against the laws of nature, etc., that is what produces sickness and disease, distress. And when people separate themselves from other people and societies, when they have their own separative ideas and idealisms, this concept of competitiveness is antithetical. To the viability of group laws. It's cooperativeness that people have to learn, loving kindness, sharing, seeing that all resources are equally owned, and so forth. You can see that the whole basis of the evolution of group laws and its understanding is what the religions have been teaching you. And what they've been teaching you is the elements, the basis, the foundation of a proper understanding of what the group laws are. But as you become awakened, as you become enlightened, you have to become fully imbibed and fully, you initiated in them in the way that they manifest and they govern your entire modus operandi. And it's this ignorance of the group laws that is, uh, from my point of view, one of the greatest uh, drawbacks that I've had in teaching students. Um, where I failed is just simply not being able to impart to, to students the importance of group evolution. And and that's in Europe or here or wherever, in India, it's, it's all basically similar. Of course, when it comes to a monastery, and monks obeying the rules of being a monk uh, within a monastic situation or an organised religion. They have their concepts of, of group laws or group living. It's still exoteric, but it has the the genesis of what we're with here in this particular teaching. It's for this reason... That, uh, well, it's one of these reasons why it's the very end of my teachings, of this treatise. After this comes Shambhala. And when we talk about Shambhala, we're talking about the whole gain of evolution, the whole gain of what following the group lords is about. And you can see, therefore, those of you that are here have a, a concept of the necessity of group evolution. And for that reason, you are still following these teachings and following them to try and to gain enlightenment, high revelations.
1: Concerning the fact you, you, you said that you have probably failed to, to teach people, to teach students about group evolution, I sincerely believe that when one being is conscious of his own evolution, can he then be able to participate in a group evolution? But as long as an individual does not have, does not the acknowledgement that he is an evolving and his own evolution is progressing. I don't
0: think he could really join a group evolution. He's not ready to understand. Well, of course, that also, you know, as being a bit cynical, part of that reason is because to understand the fact that group evolution is the method of gaining enlightenment, it means that you must be ardently aspiring to gain enlightenment and do anything on the path. To achieve that and there's very few that are so motivated. And then of those individuals, you then have to find those that are often indoctrinated by exoteric belief system. And then suddenly there's another pile goes and there's very few that left that are genuine esoteric students that, that can pass testings to initiation. Now I'm gonna read out from page one two two oh the group laws and the symbols. Just the tabulation. All of it. this is from Cosmic Fire. Now, DK. When I was going through all of these laws, I was trying to make sense of DK's ordering at first. It's, it took me. It always takes me quite a bit of time to sort out what he's writing and uh, to put it all into proper context and to look at the veils that he's written by. And the same goes for Buddhism or whatever that I'm looking at, there's always veil and there's knots within the, the writings. And the first thing, when I looked at this particular tabulation, I said, wow, you know, there is a, a problem here. He hasn't put them in, in the order of the, the rays. He's put them in a different order, and then why is that? And so then sorting out why he didn't put them in the ray order and or into a logical ray right order, much revelation then comes out of that sort of inquiry. The first of the laws he gives is the Law of Sacrifice. That's the exoteric name. The esoteric name is the law of those who choose to die. The symbol is a rosy cross with golden bird. And the ray energy is the fourth at one factor. The second law is the Law of Magnetic Impulse. The esoteric name is the Law of Polar Union. The symbol is two fiery balls in a triangle. And the ray energy is the second. The third law is the law of service. The esoteric name is the law of water and of fishes. And the symbol is a picture on the head of a man. And it's the sixth ray. The fourth law is the law of repulse. The esoteric name is the law of all destroying angels. And when you get this concept of destroying angels, you can see immediately he's not just talking about humans, he's talking about the human and the diva kingdom, and the laws that govern both of their evolutions. And when I go into the book on Shambhala, which is my final book, I will be looking at this particular group laws in terms of the the diva evolution and trying to sort out how they actually apply to them. It will be quite a fascinating study in itself. And it's quite beautifully or brilliantly worked out for me because now discovering that this barotoro is really about the diva evolution and the way they interrelate with the human. And okay, the law of repulse. The fifth law is the law of group progress. The law of elevation is its esoteric name symbol is the mountain and the goat, and it's the seventh ray that governs it. The sixth law is the law of expansive response. There's no esoteric name given. Not that he can't give it. It's just that sometimes he is not allowed to give it because it would have conveyed too much information at the time for one reason or the other that um, humanity was not ready to receive at that time. It's interesting to all of you that the revelations given by hierarchy to humanity over the millennia has always been in accordance with what humanity is ready to receive at any one time. Great sons of God, we can call it, or from Shambhala, have rayed into manifestations such as the Buddha etc. that have played their part in the next stage of revelation and the next stage of another um, great one or another great Mahabodhisattva comes into incarnation and reveals but there's always veils, there's always a limit to what they can give because it's in accordance with the evolutionary progress of humanity and the highest initiates that can incarnate at any particular time. There's always a tiny handful of very high initiates that are ready for the highest teachings and a larger mass of younger initiates that cannot comprehend that level of teaching. And therefore the highest teachings are ear whispered until uh, more initiates come into incarnation than they need those teachings that were formerly ear whispered. And so some teacher comes into incarnation, gives those ear whispered truths until and then there's another round of, of spiritual activity, and more younger ones become higher initiates and they need the next level of ear whispered truths so that only the highest ones. So, another one has to come in to reveal those, and so it goes. And of course, I'm one of those revealers of hierarchical truth. The sixth law, the law of expansive response, as I said, name not given, the symbol is. Flaming rosy sun and the um, ray is the third ray. And the seventh law is the law of the lower four. Esoteric name, the law of etheric union. The symbol is male and female form placed back to back. And it's the fifth ray. And then my particular account, I'll point out that the male and female form really re- refers to diva and human. And they actually have to come to reveal each other, to each other, over time. And this is part of the law of the lower four. Now, when you look at this particular cross, what I call the, the eight arm cross of movement in space, this, uh, the directions of these the crosses, the, the, the fixed and immutable cross that interrelate here, is absolutely essential for everyone to know. Uh, from my perspective, it is the mechanism of navigation in cosmic space. It is the mechanism of navigation in consciousness, in the fields of consciousness. The teachings, uh, the Yogakarya teachings of the eight Vijnanas relate really to this particular cross. And then all of the higher extended philosophy that's associated with it. And in this particular case you see that there are seven laws, but... These seven laws are really under the cosmic law of attraction. Now, by that I meant this law of attraction is one of those laws that come from the cosmic mental plane. Now, I'm going to try to explain this a little bit. If you think of our seven systemic planes, the earth, the physical, the astral, the mental, buddhi, anapadaka, atma, so these seven systemic planes, and think of them as below the diaphragm of a great being and if you think of the seven cosmic <coughs> astral subplanes which are the planes of final liberation the planes to which buddhas go into when they leave this earth they represent the chest cavity of a great being and then the head sphere is the cosmic mental plane. So these the five laws to do with the cosmic mental plane on which this law of attraction um, is one, just attributes of the five aspects of mind of such a great one. And these seven laws that we are looking at here are literally the laws governing cosmic astral activity. Uh, they, they're literally the laws that um, govern all those that leave the earth sphere because there's nothing left here for them to learn from and they have greater service duty elsewhere in cosmos. And then they have their reverberation via the fourth um, cosmic ether which we call Buddha and the Buddhists call Shunyata. And so they find their manifestation through the fourth cosmic ether and then they affect uh, the modifications of space as we understand it, condition it. All lesser lives respond to the energies coming through Bodhi in accordance with these cosmic laws. And therefore you see that as you're working to become enlightened, as you're aspiring to gain release from samsara, all that you're really doing is attuning yourself to the frequencies, the impressions associated with these laws and becoming completely unified with their expression. According to the particular law that governs your soul or your monad, because they are associated with rays and governed by the level of initiation in my particular expose here, I've limited my books on the whole to that relating to the taking of the fifth initiation, and mostly I've not gone beyond that, because one language just goes out through the window. It's very difficult to explain the fourth and fifth initiation, to say nothing anything beyond that. And number two is most uh, aspiring to become third degree initiates, not fifth. But my writings are for up to the level of taking the fifth initiation, whereas DK's writings up to the level of taking the third initiation, and that's the way of differentiating on the whole. And but of course, he's got much um, stuff veiled for initiates hiding. Okay, so what I've now given you is an outline. Now, with regards to this eight-arm cross. I normally start at the northeast direction, which is called unity. And what unity is, if you can think, I normally think of something like the Buddhic plane or shunyata, and it's the unified expression of all enlightened beings or the group that is in the process of manifesting its purpose or the bodhisattva purpose. And that's the northeast direction. And it manifests this purpose. Into the southeast direction, which is called expression. So, whatever the purpose is for any incarnation, whatever the purpose is for any compassionate endeavour, whatever the purpose is for any mandalic expression, you start with the unity and it finds expression in the southeast direction. And um, we're talking about the movement of the intermediate arms. I suppose what I've avoided here, of course, is the north, east, south. And west directions, because all of you should already know the forearms of the fixed cross and of the crucified Christ and what they represent. And they stand always as such; they fixed and virtually immutable. But the the mutable cross that joins these arms—the northeast, the southeast, the southwest, and the northwest—what they're really doing is taking the energies from the north. And bring him to the east via the southeast, if that makes any sense to you. Uh, the northeast manifests through the southeast so that the qualities associated with the east or the way to the heart can be engendered. And they do that through expression. And in the southwest, the south is, of course, full um, sovereign activity in the material domain, material body. The southwest is understanding where you gain knowledge and then the west is the um, interrelationship with humanity as a consequence of having that knowledge, and then the northwest is the immaterial goodwill or the return journey to the northern direction, which is upwards to the kingdom of God or to Shambhala, um, to the monad. So this whole movement of these energies spiral in and out and produce the eight-armed cross of direction. And the same is if you're travelling in consciousness anywhere in space, these, this eight-armed cross applies. And there's one after the other after the other after the other to make a, sort of a, a Nadi system, a matrix in space to which beings travel as they move from place to place. But what you really see is fixed arms and immutable crosses can move backwards or forwards that can shut beings one way or the other. And it's, it's quite a good matrix if you can think like that. Of traveling so that's basically the background for you so uh, in my in my particular description I start with the the path of aspiration which is the law of service and go through probation the law of repulse and leading to the first initiation the law of group progress and so you can see that the southern portion of this particular cross of direction, has got to do with the, the elementary stages of gaining initiation and the stuff as you can think of it, in terms of the mastery of the qualities below the diaphragm. All of the pranas, all of the chakras, and all of the energies, the emotions and sensuality and desire, all those things of human livingness that must be mastered um, below the diaphragm through these three laws. Law of service, law of repulse, and law of group progress. And those are the laws that you learn at those particular time. The law of sacrifice, DK actually gives quite a bit of information and talks quite a bit about in esoteric psychology. And he actually um, starts with this in Cosmic Fire. The number one law is the law of sacrifice. It's because... Um, it's the law that governs human evolution. It's the, power, the law of par excellence that governs human evolution. We are all lords of sacrifice. <coughs> all human monads, all human souls, um, their purpose is... Um, uh, the, the law of those who choose to die is the esoteric name. Um, they've sacrificed their spiritual freedom in order to incarnate again and again and again and again in cycles of, of woe so that certain experiences can be gained but what it really means is that you are transmuting agents of, remember some time ago I was talking about the genesis of a solar system and the capturing of cosmic dust that primordial black dust of space and it's the mechanism of actually converting that black dust into man-plants in the next solar system necessitates those who choose to die to incarnate, utilising that substance again and again and again and again of the uh, attributes of their mind, the, the substance of their minds, until eventually it gets converted into, it develops consciousness traits. And this whole philosophy it takes a long time to explain. It takes many of my books to explain this and the Buddhist books as well as the non-Buddhist books, they all integrate into one unity to explain why we are lords of sacrifice. And that is also the whole emphasis of the bodhisattva ideal, to never cease striving until all sentient beings have released, been relieved from suffering or i 've gained the other shore, and this again, and you can think about it properly as sacrifice on a, an infinite scale they the proper concept of this particular vow, and that is the um, the fourth kingdom of nature, which is the four creative hierarchy, which is human hierarchy, also called lords of sacrifice anyway, so this is just a, a little bit of background to this particular law and. You can see that it relates to the fourth initiation, which is the initiation of the attainment of Shunyata. When all that which you had been attached to in all of those lives is left behind. Shunyata is really the first step of entering into cosmic space. And samsara has no place there. Except the gain in terms of what I call the Jina Wisdoms. The Jina Wisdoms, the five wisdoms of the Dhyani Buddhas. Okay, so I'll start from here. The group laws concern the way of ascent into cosmos by the various groups that pass the test of group initiation. The era of individual progress upon the initiation tree has been surpassed because of the large number of individuals now preparing to enter the ranks of hierarchy. It is the way of evolution that conditions the hierarchy of light. The systemic third initiation is here viewed as the first cosmic initiation, thus the first two initiations are initiations on the threshold. And what I'm pointing out here is that it is quite some time ago, um, something like, I think, 2,000 years ago, or no, even less, something like 500 years or so ago, that hierarchy closed the door to individual initiation progress. Basically, there were just so many initiates, those entering the path, those on the path of probation, that hierarchy started to, you know, decided at some conclave to go on the next higher step of the initiation path, which is group initiation and not individuals like the Buddha taking an initiation and then moving on. So an initiate here, an initiate there, appearing, and sometimes two or three. But now it has to be the group, uh, groups of initiates, are passing the grade.
1: Before that time, how would that be possible? Given that you've just spelled out that these are kind of cosmic laws. So when you look at those religious figures like the Buddha or Muhammad or so forth, and it seems to be a real individual. Step yes. Away yes. From
0: okay. The group yeah. What it What it means is that the individual. Um, as they were taking the high initiations, sort of you know, were initiated into the group laws and applied to them, and then they, through their teachings, like the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, which is really an application of the cosmic laws, the group laws, to his community. The three are seen as one. This is actually one of these group laws. And um, so then they teach it, but there's not enough initiates to actually progress along one of those laws together. It's only after the time of the Buddha that the group laws could be applied on the physical plane rather than in the consciousness of the individual initiate. So what I'm pointing out is now we have to now bring down the type of consciousness as a group that the initiate in those times had to just brought within themselves as they gained their enlightenment. So more is demanded of the individual. And I say down here, The order of the group laws provided by DK and a and Cosmic Fire, which conditioned the way of human evolution, rather than the evolution in general, shall be utilised and placed in the arms of the cross of directions in space. The reason why he put them in this direction was because they governed human evolution rather than evolution in general. You've got evolution in general which can prizes of the kingdom of nature, the divas, and so forth. So if you're looking at that, then I would place them according to the ray lines. But if you're looking in terms of human evolution, then the way that DK has put them is correct.
1: Um, On this board, is that correct, ray two, second rays on there twice?
0: It shouldn't be. Where do you have second Um. ray?
1: We've got magnetic
0: impulse. It's the second ray. Um, law of service is fourth ray, and ro- uh, law of service is sixth ray, and law of sacrifice is fourth. Which is
1: group. seventh? There's no seven on this board. And you've
0: got magnetic group impulse group. and group. The seventh, f- the ray seven, is the southwest direction. Law yeah. of group progress. Okay. I'm a bit blind.
1: <laughs> and the, the ray six, law of service, it is written
0: aspiration. It is aspiration. As um aspiration. Yeah, yeah yeah aspiration. It's at a path of aspiration. That's what it means. It's The beginners enter this, this law through service work, which is understandable, and through devotion, through the sixth ray of devotion, of emotional idealism, of the creative imagination, of worship, worship of all forms. So you can see that this sixth ray and service goes together. And this law of service for all of you is the obviously the easiest to to think of in terms of and probably the law of group progress if you think that we all have to evolve together. And the law of group progress is what we here are unfolding, right? We've passed our first initiation and therefore we already know the elements of this law is that we um, are here, we bend over backwards to help the other to take the next step up whatever they need, you give to them in terms of their spiritual aspiration, their spiritual needs. And you're primarily focused on helping them. And when you're more focused upon helping them than upon yourself, then you're passing this particular law. And that's what brings you up on the initiation path. And that's the law of group progress. The law of repulse, I'll try to explain to you, which I've got here, the law of probation. But it's the foundational law that pushes all of the other laws onwards through space, it's it's almost like the jet fuel that that fuels a rocket or a jet plane, the law of repulse. The first law, the law of sacrifice, is placed under the northeast arm of unity. Anyway, I go into these crosses and also with this cross, I've given two sets of astrological signs. For instance, for the fourth law of sacrifice, I've got Sagittarius and Virgo. Um, the first of the signs is esoteric. And it's the sign that governs the particular law. Now DK does not give the esoteric or the exoteric sign. So I've meditated and I won't go into the full meditation how these signs came into being. I have my notes over there. But So the first one is esoteric and the second, Virgo, in this case, is the exoteric ruler of... A particular law. The exoteric ruler is derived in this particular case from the Beatitudes which was explained in the chapter before this one. And down here I say the Beatitudes um, thus condition the process whereby one comes to master the attributes of the law to which one is coming to be receptive with respect to the initiation aspired to. Okay, the focus of this rendering will be the path of initiation from the development of aspiration to tread the path to taking the fifth initiation. Each of the laws will, will be seen to refer to one of the stages, though in reality, there are higher considerations that could also be dealt with. And um, then I go into my chart here, which is my tabulation here, which is basically just an uh, extract from DK's tabulation on page 1220, so I won't uh, say that again. The ray lines provided. But she does that, I'll just read this out. The ray lines provided by DK in the order given for the law start with the second ray line, four two six, followed by that of the first ray line, one seven three and 5. We thus have a delineation between the Pingala and the Ida expression in nature. Pingala is always the second ray line and the Ida is always the first or the third ray line. Signifying distinction between the second ray human line who embody the way of love in nature, and the Diva line that embody the way of mind. And it's quite important for all of you to begin to think like this, that the Pingala stream is is the the stream of human consciousness, and the Ida stream is the stream of Diva uh, attributes. And the Diva attributes incorporate also your minds in the way your minds manifest and the way of the evolution of compassion is the manifestation of the human and therefore in Buddhism you've got wisdom and compassion whereas the wisdom aspect is the deep or the feminine and the compassion is the masculine the pingala and the ida the thing with Buddhism, they, they have a wonderful way of omitting the deep or the feminine principle throughout but they still have the doctrines there correct, except where it's veiled or knotted. And I'm saying it cynically, I'm saying it's wonderful, the way they've managed to do that. The more I read Buddhism, the more I'm I'm fascinated by the way that they... They had an agenda, and they manifested the agenda, and the agenda necessitated eliminating, apart from the concept of dakinis and, and consorts... so
1: throughout the cosmology?
0: Not No, no, apart from the concept of Dakini's and consorts, and maybe vaguely in the paramita, it's almost excluded. There's no mention of divas, right? There's no mention of the diva kingdom. The bipolar universe is not there, though it is. That's what I'm trying to get to. And they're hidden in such veils as wisdom and compassion and the Buddha and consort or the raffle deity and consort. It's all veiled in those sorts of ways. But there's not many Buddhists that really understand the significance of the consorts, what they actually mean. OK, first I'll start with the law of sacrifice. Incidentally, the law of sacrifice. This law is focused via the northeastern arm of the cross, signifying unity. And as I said, relates to the Fourth Initiation. Its esoteric name is those, the law of those who choose to die. And the symbol is Rosy Cross with a golden bird. So that gives you the basic elements of this, which I'll now explain. Then I said, a human unit must learn to sacrifice his, its own wishes, desires and attachment to form in order to travel upwards to the domain of liberation. The process of struggle to overcome the allurements of samsara by renouncing transitory attachments to objects of the senses invokes the major law governing the four creative hierarchy. Now, all of you understand this concept of sacrifice, right? This is pretty elementary. The path will inevitably produce the sacrifice of the form of the Sambhogakaya flowers. Now, this aspect of sacrifice is really what this law is referring to. More than your physical plane allurements and attachments. It's quite interesting to me, intriguing to me, for instance, in the past two chapters of the first two chapters of Bhadatotl, all I've really been talking about and all of those deities that appeared is the Sambhogakaya flower and how they relate to it and how they organize it and how they cause its evolution and so forth, because that is the real focus. Most of you have to begin to understand that your physical body is the maya virupa, the gross body of illusion. Your real selves are your souls, the Tathagatagaba, the Buddha womb, and its rays, personalities such as we, what we are, in and out of, in and out and in and out of, it, in and out of it, um, incarnation, again and again and again and again and again, in order to achieve its goal. And what you're trying to do as you take your initiation, the third initiation ahead of you, is to unite with that soul in every respect. By that is meant that what you regard of yourself will then no longer exist. There will be your form that will walk around and identify of other similar human forms, but that consciousness that is Activating that form is your soul, is the Tathagatagaba, the Sambhogakeya flower. It is then at one with you. Your consciousness has died. Your thinking of yourself has died. And this is what you call sacrifice or your sacrificial activity. You're dying to all those conditionings that you incarnated into in terms of consciousness, so that which is the cause of incarnation after incarnation after incarnation of entities like what you are presently can live in you and expound its purpose for that incarnation. And that is what I call the Shunyata Enlightenment. But at a certain particular time, that soul itself must die and this enter into what the is call shunyata, the fourth initiation, and this particular law relates to that process of the death of the soul, not so much to the death of your personal selves. You understand the distinction? Even though your personal selves go through the similar process of dying uh, to all of those samskaras of attachment to material plane life. And... You know how difficult that is. And before you get to this law of sacrifice, of course, you go through the other laws that of the southern direction we've mentioned, the law of service, the law of group progress, the law of repulse. These three laws are all there to condition you for this higher law. This powerful inevitably produced the sacrifice of the forms of the samboga flowers when the purpose of human incarnations have been achieved. This is how Body chitta awakens and becomes the leap motive of the pledged disciple, which is the mainstay of the initiate. It demonstrates the potency of being able to transmute the cosmic waters by means of which all compassionate concerns and merciful decisions come to be continuously made. So, this is along the second ray line, and what you are endeavouring to do as you walk the path of initiation. As you undergo this process along the law of sacrifice is to become a vessel so that the waters of cosmic space, the waters of cosmic love or the mind of love that is translated as bodhicitta, manifests through you. You just become a vehicle. So everything that is resistant to that is... Left behind or dispelled, and all that is left is you as that vehicle. And that is basically a description of Shunyata or the fourth initiation. The entire purpose for the originating aeonic incarnation of human monads into the substance of cosmic dense physical plane is here implicated. It concerns the redemption of the substance of the space incorporated biologoic form in the originating act of the creation of a planetary or solar sphere. All of the kingdoms of nature come into existence and by incorporating that substance in the periodic sheaves of cyclic incarnation, the human unit assists in converting it into units of intelligent activity. The process takes a vast arena of time It is a salvaging and sanctification process of the myriad element lives that constitute the substance of samsara. Freedom to travel in cosmos is temporarily sacrificed by the monadic life so that primal substance can be redeemed in this way. And there you have the true meaning of this concept of sacrifice. It's ionic, for a monadic form and it is limited to the form of the soul for the generation of those symbolic 777 incarnations whilst this process of converting cosmic dust into units of intelligent life or intelligent activity happens. And you and I, all of us, the crucibles, the transmutative crucibles, crucibles of experience, where the alchemical retorts. And you're going through transforming your samskaras and as you do so, in your meditative lives, so you're unfolding this law of sacrifice. You're overcoming your allurements of samsara, but as you do so, you're converting primordial substance into higher states of sentiency. It's a wonderful process, is it not? Billions of human units acting thus converts a whole ring pass knot of a low-egoic mind, elemental mind, into enlightened mind. Sacrifice essentially means giving up something valuable, precious for a concept or significant significance deemed more worthy. For a human unit this involves renunciation of all attachments to the elements of samsara so that divinity can begin to reside within the temple of the human form. It means the complete renunciation of the concept of self so that others can be maximally ...benefited without egotism interfering. It therefore constitutes the foundation for the development of the group laws. An entire group of individuals are then stimulated towards loving interrelations... ...by means of the surrender, by the sacrificial ones... ...of the sum of their egotistical posturings so that others may benefit. And that's the law of sacrifice. The gain of sacrifice is bliss... Right, or joy first and then bliss. And that is the skull cup uh, filled with blood that you drink. That's the gain of the sacrifice. And, but at first, most people conceive of sacrifice, of surrendering in this sort of way, causing suffering or, or, or transient pain and suffering. For most of us, um, it's hard to let go of cherished ideas, ideals and possessions for the service of others. And look at this world around you, you can see how hard it is for them. So I say here, often sacrifice connotes giving up significant or prized material possessions to the poor or needy. Such action, however, is only the beginning of the path dealt with in the law. A true sacrifice, however, means a complete reorientation of one's entire psyche for the benefit of the many. It incorporates renunciation and striving of constantly developing more skillful ways to give. It necessitates the development of the heart and mind in unison to produce the great wisdom, to produce great wisdom as to how best to give sacrifice. Produces the bodhisattva vow to never cease striving until all sentient beings have been released from suffering. This then inevitably leads to the crucifixion experience, whereby the fourth initiation is undertaken. It is the path taken by all who comprehend the true significance of the fellowship of the Christ's sufferings. It is the hierarchical way. For this reason this law stands at the northeast direction of unity as the path of sacrifice unites all into a bond of love and the will to serve. Unitedly they evolve their plan to do so, taking all of humanity in fact all of nature's illusions and causes of suffering into account. Vast and complex is the interrelation interdependence of all members of humanity. And to meet their needs, many of the plans may take thousands of years to accomplish. Such is the nature of the sacrifice body. the Bodhisattvas to see the plans through until the last weary pilgrim has passed through the gates to liberation. The of perception in which these group laws manifest to affect those in samsara's buddhi, the fourth cosmic ether, which is a major objective of the general Buddhist dispensation to experience. Such experience is also conceived of in terms of Jesus' crucifixion. Now I go into the esoteric ruler, Sagittarius de Archer, which governs the significance of this law. After the initiation path has been instigated, the arrows of lofty aspiration can be fired towards the highest target upon this planet, Shambhala. This goal necessitates aspiration to take the fourth and higher initiations. The fiat of the Lord can then manifest through the service arena of initiative, developing righteousness and virtuous ideals via their specific ray dispensation. Sagittarius connotes developing the various types of will that allows one to relinquish attachment to one or other form of samskara until all that is left is manifesting divinity. It signifies firing the arrows of the will and purpose to ever higher goals of possibility. For the aspirant, the goal signifies the symbol of the divine or their own souls. For the probationary disciple, it represents the precincts of the ashram of the master or the service arena of the group. For the first degree initiate, it relates to aspiring towards the mountaintop of experience. For Initiates of high degree, it means firing arrows of revelation ever towards the target of the greatest source of light and love. This then produces the crucifixion experience. Inevitably, the target becomes a domain of Shambhala. By paradoxically, turning one's back upon that august door, because the need of service to the little ones is so overwhelmingly great, one sacrifices one's own perception of progress so that the myriads can gain. And this is actually the key, a part of the key to this particular initiation. Uh, you forget about the fact that you're actually on the path of initiation because you're so engrossed in service work. There's so much need out there to help the little ones. And so you're self-initiated, you do the service work arena, and you find yourself as a consequence of virtually ionic um, activity at the door of initiation. It opens up behind you and you enter. The door of liberation thereby looms large behind the initiate and many are the ones that that are consequently drawn into it. At the appropriate time, the lords of life will cry out, accepted into Shambhala. The cosmic paths will then open to which the initiate must turn to fire arrows of release to far distant shores. Life upon the earth is then sacrificed so that the greater vastness can be served. The effect of Sagittarius the archer thus helps to generate the various forms of the will leading to the divine will. And the divine will was explained in 4th It concerns firing arrows of one-pointed aspiration towards the door of initiation, Capricorn, which produces the way of escape from the fall of cosmic dense physical incarnation. The development of the initiation path turns all candidates into children of God, because it is what makes one divine through sacrificial action. Sacrifice sanctifies, making one a shambalic recipient. I'll read up to the second law and then we'll stop it. The fourth ray of beautifying harmony, overcoming conflict, governs the law of sacrifice and is the ray governing humanity in general. The generation of sacrificial acts amidst the conflict, struggle, egregious forms of human behaviour to produce beneficent beauty, right human relations and truly wholesome societies is an expression of this ray. History abounds with the stories of those who have sacrificed their lives for human betterment often in the most appalling conditions and by confronting cruel and undeviating opposition. They work to overcome the selfish disposition, avarice, rapacity and materialism of humanity so that human lives are bettered upon all avenues of expression. The sacrificial ones become martyrs, heroes, innovators, philosophers, educators, healers, scientists and warriors of the Lord. Myriad are the unsung stories of the sacrificial acts for the benefit of others generated by people living in everyday society. Every such act is but a step towards eventual liberation from samsaric woe, a step upon the path of light and love that will incorporate them into the ashrams of hierarchy. Aspiration for human betterment must struggle to produce a sense of harmony and beauty in their daily lives amidst the chaos disharmony and conflict all around. Such harmony can only be achieved if they incorporate into their surroundings others that similarly aspire. In doing so, group endeavour evolves and grows until they become crucified for the salvation of all. The energy of beautifying harmony will then flow through every pore of their beings so as to produce a new Aquarian era of aesthetic garden cities around the globe that adequately sustain Society's needs. We see from the above that the entire tenure of these group laws is the elevation of the little ones by those who choose to die to their material selves so that all can progress upon the path of liberating light and love to life divine. The exoteric sign governing this law is Virgo, the Virgin, associated with the sixth beatitude. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. But they should be filled. Righteousness, uprightness, characterized by high morality and virtuous ideals, is a force that becomes applied to one service arena involving the sacrifice of time and resources so that others can be appropriately educated. Righteousness then is the force of the energy waves of the United Service Work of hierarchy to cause the liberation of all lives from the Maya of their lives and the froze of the causes of their suffering. It is the effect of bodhicitta demonstrating via positive actions, a major energy governing the activities of hierarchy. One sacrifices oneself for the common good for righteousness' sake. Virgo here represents the mud of all new ventures, as well as the substance embodied by the devas. One must sacrifice the lower devas, the lunar lords, and elementals that embody the substance of our incessant desires and emotions. A working cooperation with the higher devas must take their place, so that eventually a marriage, a new interrelation between human and deva evolution, occurs. Eventually, even concepts of being human are eliminated through a fusion between the two kingdoms that happens at the higher initiations, and this. Fusion between these two kingdoms is what is the bliss experienced in tantric texts of the drinking of that um, uh, skull cup full of blood. It's the union, the Yayung union of the Buddha and his consort. And that is really the symbol of the fusion between the diva, the consort, and the Buddha, the human element into one and it produces a blissful experience. And this is the effect of the Law of Sacrifice. And everything that um, comes to bring that about is what this Law um, signifies. So that's the... uh once it is bit fast. That's the ending of this section to do of this Law. And I'll, I'll touch upon it again in the next book. You can see also in my preamble there's some things I talked about that I didn't put in this particular chapter could have talked more about monadic evolution but for that sort of thing um, one has to lay the foundation and unfortunately my foundation for that type of information won't be laid until i do the manuscript on the secret doctrine so you can see that there's um, someone is limited by what one can say in terms of the fact that the foundation has not yet been given and that's one of the things I handicap. I'm handicapped in when I'm writing my books. You know, terminology can't be said, concepts can't be given because the foundation hasn't yet been properly laid. You can see why D.K. more or less makes this the preeminent law for humanity. It's a thing that most human beings find very difficult to do. And yet there you have it. Throughout their history, you have those exemplary sort of sons of humanity that have achieved great courage and given their all for the benefit of humanity, often crucified or martyred one way or the other. But uh, at the end, we all have gained from that sacrifice. I just one question.
1: As far as methods goes for bringing such a law into fruition, practically, um, I mean, obviously in, say, Buddhist and Christian traditions, there's a lot said about... No one ought to sacrifice, mm. um, you know, practice loving-kindness, bodhicitta, charity to one's neighbour, etc., etc. Yeah. But as far as the yogic technique, yogic techniques, which um, lead a person to embody that kind of cosmic law, what would you say are the primary or the best methods?
0: If you sacrifice through emotional idealism, you'll go astray. By that I mean if you sacrifice through the force of your impetuous will or desire to do good. What you have to learn and what all have to learn is to sacrifice according to the law of karma, according to the the right timing uh, for things to eventuate. And um, often it takes great patience to know that right timing, to wait, to gather the forces together to gather the elements together, so there's no impetuousness that that is to, or, unwisdom. In our particular case, it necessitates doing the meditations and being ever meditatively awakened so that hierarchy, or the Samagukea flower, monad, can speak through you, tell you when to act. In reality, the younger students, the younger ones, do work at it. Which we've just said, you know, Dana, sort of but anyway, sort of all, you know, charity and all these things, giving possessions, uh, like Saint Francis, sort of gave everything away to the poor, and walked around the sacrop and so forth. The, these forms of sacrifice easy to understand, but they're not necessary. The wisest way to act, the way to act with sacrifice, as I said, is. And what I'm getting to is that for initiates of high degree, they don't have to think too much about this. They're impelled to give. And their whole life mandala is an act of sacrifice. They've incarnated for a purpose. They're avatars of of a particular purpose. And so that they're incarnated, uh, for instance, and maybe a great philosopher or somebody who becomes a great philosopher at the end of his life or her life, or a great sort of um, religionist or, or politician or whatever, or mathematician. They're empowered along that way, and they don't really care about making money or all those sort of things. Those things they will take and receive them if needed, or what they care about is the work that they have come to do, and that is the sacrifice. In short,
1: there. The principle method is to be completely aligned to your fundamental purpose. That's which right. Which is why listening to impressions and so forth is...
0: It's the method, yes. Because if you take book knowledge and say, well, the, the, the scriptures say I must do this and this and this, no, that, that's the error. That's a guide. Because what will happen is you become impetuous where you want to make something happen before the rightful time. And disaster happens. You, you're there with full of good intent. Full of loving attitudes. You, you can see what you want for those individuals and normally comes for individuals. You have not yet understood that they're not ready. They may need 10 years, 20 years more of um, conditional learning about samsara and, and preparing themselves and what you actually want to give them. So you must wait. And so... This act of sacrifice often involves this concept of patience, Mm. concept of waiting, you know, and preparing yourself. The impetuousness must go and wisdom must take its place. So all those things that that produce the lack of true wisdom in action must go. So every action that you do has a foresight of the future consequence of what you do and that necessitates great wisdom. So the sacrifice is the development of wisdom, everything that prevents that. So the the practice is not uh, not that easy to to explain because it is different per individual per their their right method and also according to their initiation degree. If they're younger initiates, the the formulas in the books, you know, the recipes that they can read in their in their their spiritual books, whether it's Christianity or or Buddhism or whatever, you know, you sort of you you, you practice the the you know, the virtues, you know, you you turn sort of and envy into um, loving kindness or egolessness and things like that. So you try to work upon your five poisons and try to cleanse those and they work upon one after the other and you're know, doing the 100,000 prostrations. These are all just the foundations of what I call recipes. And there's the cookbook and that's for the beginners. But for initiates of higher degree, you are motivated, you are propelled, um, you are inspired, you don't really need the teachers within you and, and you do and you sacrifice and eventually you find a group such as what you are now that are similarly propelled as you are and then hierarchy can be found and you know, the teacher manifests and then the laws of group evolution come to be consciously worked with and until then they are unconsciously motivating you because they're coming by the soul or for the, by a hierarchy that is directing you. So in the end, this part of of sacrifice is to know the right timing for what needs to be done, when it is to be done, and then do it at that time. And often it is waiting, getting the, the equipment. And, for instance, in your case, you know, five or so years of, of working at a university, you know, at at getting a doctorate, that's also sacrifice. And um, the reason why you put yourself through that type of training is uh, because you can see a vision at the end of what you want to do with the accomplishment. And it's only now working out the possibilities. And so that whole process that led you there and to where you are now is all part of the same energy stream. This particular law. None of us here really care much for our material comforts, material things. You know, we could all sacrifice those. You know, I, I personally would would love to be in a in a, a cave somewhere in Tibet, uh, in a monastery or whatever. You know, we have around us all you know the, the glittering allurements, or all beautiful, beautiful artifacts and things like that, because we don't need to sacrifice those things in order to follow the path because all of these images that we have around us is also the image of the path. It was also the mechanism of helping others, of inspiring them, of learning from you. And so a certain amount of money, resources were sacrificed for these implements, for these books and so forth, and for the computers that we need for our writing. But in reality, it's the inner workings, the inner conviction, the inner driving force that makes the path for you. Now, A part of her sacrifice was simply to have some children, three children. You know, I I also, that's also part of my sacrifice, but the main load of that is upon her. And, you know, what happened then, she knew immediately that all that freedom that she had before would be taken away from her. And then when another one came in, another one, um, it was not really what was in her mind of her life. There was... Other things you would love to have done, such as being a creative artist and so forth. But there is a time for, as the book of Ecclesiastic, you know, time for every season. You know, a time to sow, a time to, to reap, a time to pray, and so forth. And this is also the path of sacrifice. So you know that that is the sacrifice because there's the gain, and the gain is over a long period of time. Um, and then the liberation or the freedom, the samskaras scars have been cleansed, the karma is also worked out, and that is the other thing with this path that all that are following me, my teachings, know well that you must cleanse your karma, you must work out your karma. The only way to become a Buddha in the end is to become a less. And so, the stream of the karma that, that have brought you here and that you must work out is the string that eventually leads you to liberation and that's all been worked out by the lords of life. But in between here and that liberation where the karma will lead you to, um, you have all of those silly things you did in past lives that you rather not know about, but unfortunately there is the karma. Are the, those energy samskaras were gendered and you must play out your role to wherever it leads you and suffer the karma gladly or joyously because it is liberating and that's also part of the path of sacrifice. So you can see it's, it's many levels, but on the whole it's dispassion, desireless as to what happens to you personally but or to listen internally as to what you're prompted to do, that will produce maximum benefit for the greatest number with technically least energy expenditure and that necessitates following the way of group evolution more can be done by means of a mechanism of a group than ever done by an individual on their own for instance, I could not do anything with all of you in terms of my writings and getting them published and so forth it's all part of that. And this is what the fellowship of the Christ's sufferings was explained earlier in, in this particular book. It's not the, the fact that the Christ was uh, sitting on the cross and had nails to his hands, but it's the compassion for the others. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's the Christ's sufferings. They know not what they do. It's the what we call the stupidity, the you know, well, the sheer stupidity of average humanity. The crimes that they commit, the the horrible sort of acts of pain and suffering they cause upon others. Their own karma is, is built upon. They destroy the the harmony of the planet and so forth. And it's what they do. And those things that they do and how to help them, that's the Christ's sufferings. That's the sufferings of all bodies. We see the the mass pain and suffering uh, of the ignorance of humanity and the stupidity of the way they act. And we are all, in one way or the other, have pledged ourselves to relieve them from those forms of stupidity. And mostly because we are high initiates, this necessitates writing books. And we're mainly writing for... Higher initiates, who hopefully, or initiates a little bit younger than us, who hope they can spread the teachings to a greater number, and they can take it and spread it to even a vaster number. They can take and spread it even to a vaster number over time. And so, hopefully, the gift waves of your your writing activity or the example of your lifestyle will help the many, and that's all part of it. So the sacrifice is that, and the beautiful thing about this law is that. Not just you or I and other initiates are governed by it, but all of hierarchy and all of Shambhala, all of cosmos—they the, all governed by this this fundamental law of sacrifice. And this is one of the things why I'm incarnate and why some of you incarnate also is that the hierarchy is now externalizing, and not many of you actually thought that the externalization of hierarchy is the law of sacrifice for them um, to incarnate into physical bodies when it's so much easier to be out of your body, out of the physical body, as an enlightened being working from the inner realms. You can see what I'm trying to get to. That externalisation process is great sacrifice for all members of hierarchy. And for that, it's mainly what I'm working for, is to make it, or to try to help them, to, high, to, to make the conditions best so that they can incarnate. And one of those things that needs that is needed for them is the high level of teachings. And the high level of teachings is started with the K's books and Blaskin and my books, and then some of you will, will actually you know, exemplify and, and give commentaries and so forth. So these books that I'm writing is for the high members of, of hierarchy when they incarnate. So they have teachings that they can find that will inspire them and help them gain the initiations that they need. So you can see it's all part of the law of sacrifice and the law of progress and the other laws that, that we follow. And the more you learn about these laws, the more you will think about them and you begin to see the way that the laws actually manifest here and there, and in history, where you know for instance, you know, philosophers have followed these laws about understanding that they're doing so it's it's a wonderful wonderful process and so I hope that all of you actually thoroughly come to understand these laws and so that you can actually help teach others because that's what this world is most ignorant of the path of initiation and the laws of group evolution many other things we could say but it's such and such and such a course that and you've you've been virtual poverty is as part of it but you you're living a lifestyle where personal possessions don't mean much what means a lot is the possessions of your heart of the, what's developing in your mind that enables you to write the books, for instance, and the, the group, the community spirit that is developing around us. You know, this, what we have as a group is exceedingly valuable because you know, I know, we know that we are just an outpost of hierarchy and all of hierarchy sings through us lives through us as we aspire upwards to pass the initiation path. And therefore we meditate, and therefore we listen to their comms, and we listen to our own internal impressions. It's you know, That is one group, one law, and all of these laws that we're talking about is the way they operate, the way they think. It's, for them, instincts, <laughs> for us, we are still learning. Any other questions?
1: I think we can teach sacrifice only when we have left uh, a few of them.
0: <laughs> yes. The, the cookbook recipes and the holy books that, of this law that they follow, and that's good for the beginners, but for those that are initiates, there's a different way of interpreting.
1: Actually, mm-hmm. are at that point where it is a true renunciation. It's got nothing to do really with it you know, with any sense of return. It's true sacrifice does not require um, remuneration.
0: That's what in this particular text when I read out, you turn your back on the concept of even initiation and you're simply giving and giving and giving. Mm. And then the door of initiation opens up behind you and the initiator says accept it. And it's only when you are capable of doing that so you can see what, for instance, that I know with the Bailey types that, that read all the Bailey books, they're so ensconced with the concept of initiation that they're thinking of their first initiation or second or whatever it is, and they always have this image of um, initiation ahead of them. Whereas the ones that are truly working on the path of initiation, they know that they're working for their third initiation, but in the end, you forget that, and there's just simply is the service work. And one of the ways that, of course, that hierarchy brings us into us is the fact that it takes time. You know, one it's not one year, two years. It could be one decade, two decades, three decades away, and where you're working for the gain of this particular initiation. What you actually have to understand, what, you, what the, those testings are, you have to know all the theory. And once you've got all the theory in your head, then you start to apply and then you forget the theory because the theory has to become automatic in your application. The teachings are given to you because exactly. so that you know all the parameters associated with that initiation. You know basically what's expected of third-degree initiates. The second initiation is not good enough. Yes, the second initiation is initiation on in the threshold. Many that have taken the second initiation, and I can sort of mention names, but I won't, retrogress. They think that that nice, easy sort of load of loving activity is all they need to do. But it's not. They actually have to aspire to die to all aspects of their personal concept of self, etc., so this Sagittarian, and I, I use the term the Archer in this particular fourth this initiation. Sagittarius must come into it. You must develop the will to aspire, the will to develop the the will to good, the will to love, the will of love, divine will. Uh, these higher aspects, this higher striving, must come Strive. in, and it's a fiery striving. And if you cannot do that, you cannot take the third. And the third is. Literally, the the first cosmic initiation, it really is the first. It's the, the first step of, well, I won't say the first step, it is the first stage of enlightenment. Within that concept, as I've mentioned before, it's an internal listening. There are... X amount of samskaras to be cleansed out by each individual, there's certain types of karma, puddles of karma that must be lived out, worked out, and the initiation can't be fully taken until that karma has been cleansed all those samskaras have been worked out, but at all time there is a sense of striving and a sense of the right thing to do at any particular time and a sense of closing this door and then opening up the next higher door. And the initiate is always closing a door to a lower form of activity, a lower form of attachment and opening up a door to a more fiery form of activity and so forth until eventually one is liberated from samsara. And until you have this sense of closing and opening, of knowing when that karma is finished, when that cycle is finished, the cycle of attachment to A, B, C, and D is finished, then you go into a higher level of expression. And there may be other forms of subtler attachments, but they are right and appropriate at that time because of the karma. And then, sometime, that cycle is finished. You close those doors, you move on to the next. And that you do within group context. You do that according to your internal listening. And the group itself will tell you. So it's the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. The Dharma, you all know, is these teachings. The Buddha, uh, I can represent the Buddha. It's also the Buddha within you. And then the Sangha is each one of you helping each other to pass your initiation testings. And because it's also group service. Within the group laws is the concept of group service. There's no um, working out the group law without group service activity, without working as a group for a specific group purpose. The group entity, the group being, takes over your personal self. You merge into the group and the group becomes you. That is the way of the initiate. The The concept of the self dies in the selflessness of the group. And that's the way of initiation.